Um, okay, so we're finishing our series on the Beatitudes today. And the, uh, I suppose a starting place is for me to state the obvious, which is that we as followers of Jesus are a minority in this country. And uh, if you're following Jesus and you currently go to school, you will be one of a small handful of um, Christians in your entire school, let alone your class. Uh, for many of us at work, it's the case that we are the only Christian in the workplace. Um, depending on our family background, for, for, I know for a whole bunch in the church, you're the only Christian in your family. And uh, although we're living in a country where you can drive for five minutes and see three churches, the reality is um, that the way things are and the way things look like they're going in the future is we're living in a country that does not share, um, in many ways, the values of Scripture and what it is to follow Jesus. And, um, and so partly because of that, we've talked about when we come to the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, it's this almost, it's like this adjustment. It's like a, a, a culture change, a culture shift. Um, you know, the example we've used is it's a little like getting on a plane, flying to a foreign country. If we were to get off somewhere like India, we would get off and we'd have to adjust to a, a different culture, a different way of life, a different time zone even. And it would take us a while to, to get a feel for it and to get a sense for it. If that's true, just traveling for a number of hours, that is infinitely more true when we talk about going from being part of the kingdom of the world to becoming citizens of the kingdom of heaven, which is what happened when we said yes to following Jesus. There is a, a, a process that we go through where we adjust to what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to live as part of the kingdom of heaven. And that process is called discipleship. And it is a journey that we will be on for the whole of our lives. Um, but spending time in the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly the start of it, which is what we've been looking at, the Beatitudes, is a way of immersing ourselves in what the kingdom of heaven is like. And um, part of what it's getting at is where joy is found in the kingdom of heaven. It's so often not where we expect. And so uh, we're looking at the final one today, and I'm going to read just for a recap for us from the start of the Beatitudes. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. He said... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And here's the final one. Uh, this is for us. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the final one has a little addition. He goes on to say, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when you are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we, we've talked about how each of the Beatitudes, they're a shock 
when you, when you first hear them. And it doesn't sound like it's a very blessed state. Well, if that's true of all the ones that have gone before, how much more so is this true of the final one? Blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Um, you know, I imagine myself being in the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount, just turning to the person I was standing next to. I'm sorry, I thought he said I was blessed when I was persecuted. I must have misheard him. I thought he said I was blessed when people insult me and they falsely go around saying all kinds of evil against me. I must have misheard because there's no way that could be what he's actually saying. Um, but it is. And in a funny way, it's saying this is what we can expect as we follow Jesus. Nobody told me that when they invited him to come to me, to come to know him. They didn't give me the small print that there was going to be persecution involved along the way. I don't know if anybody told you. Because in, in this, Jesus is painting a picture of what it is to be like him in the Beatitudes. And so there are certain things that he says, like um, being a peacemaker and being merciful and being pure in heart. But also alongside all of those things, he says, being persecuted. And uh, if I'm honest, I thought that becoming a Christian would make me less likely to get persecuted. Um, because I thought, well, I'm trying to become more like Jesus, which basically in my head at that point meant nicer. I'm going to become more loving and hopefully kinder. And so, you know, I would hope that people will want to persecute me less. Um, but actually, when we pause and we look at the life of Jesus, uh, one of the things that we see is, yes, crowds flocked to him and all sorts of people uh, adored him. But also there was, a, there was a lot of reaction against him. And ultimately, it was that that led him to, to being persecuted. Now, Jesus was persecuted physically. Uh, he was tortured, and, and obviously, he was executed on the cross. Um, but his, his definition of persecution here in, in what we just read is not just physical persecution. So he says, um, when people insult you, when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And the sort of persecution that Jesus endured, it wasn't just physical. So his, his own family uh, at one point didn't believe in him and, and turned on him. He was at, at points accused of being um, filled with Satan and operating under satanic powers. He was accused of being mad. Um, there were crowds of people that at his, at his trial, when he was put on trial, it was crowds of people that were yelling for his death. They were saying, kill him. They said, we'd rather have Barabbas, who was a known murderer, released to us than Jesus. And so he, he experienced all sorts of insults and humiliations and people going for him and people misrepresenting him. He endured persecution. And, uh, and he says this to his followers, to us, his disciples. Uh, these are words from the Last Supper, John 15, verse 20. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Now, one of my questions is, as I've had to wrestle with what on earth does this mean, um, is why? why? Why will they persecute us? Um, why will people want to persecute you? And so, and so first of all, let's say what it is not. Um, it does not say 
Blessed are you when you are persecuted because you've been insensitive, unkind, and just thrown your agenda at people. Um, and I've noticed in the church that we can at times do that. We can, come out, we, we can just come out what we think is all guns blazing with effective sharing of the gospel. And actually so often it's lacking in sensitivity. And, and, and then when people react, we can say, well, we're being persecuted. That's not being persecuted because of righteousness. That's being persecuted because we're being a wally. And so it doesn't, it doesn't say that. What it's saying is, blessed are you when people persecute you because of righteousness, which is because of being like me in my character. Um, another way of putting it is because you're trying to live out the first of the seven Beatitudes, that, 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 then there's a reaction against you. And uh, again, come back to the question, why would anyone want to persecute us if we're, if we're acting like Jesus, who is love and who is joy and who is peace and who, who, who is justice himself? Why would people want to persecute us like that? And by way of answering it, um, I want to introduce you to somebody that I would like to personally persecute. And there are not many people that fall into this category, but there are one or two. And I have a photo of one of them here. Now, you're expecting a photo of Mike. I'm afraid it isn't a photo of Mike. Um, now, most of you are not at the stage where you have little kids, and so you don't have to endure children's television. But I sit through hours of it. And this is from a program called Bing. Bing is the, t the toddler. And bizarrely, this is one of the many things that in irritates me about this program. He's the bigger one of these two. So he's the, he's the toddler on the right. And then there on the left is his dad, Flop. And... Um, Flop is the one that I really, he does my head in. If anyone has, all the parents with little kids are not here because we haven't got kids work, but there's a number of them shouting at the screen, yes and amen, as they watch us on the live stream, because they know how annoying Flop is. There's all sorts of things about Flop that irritate me to death, but probably if I was to put my finger on what the most annoying thing about Flop is, of the long list that I have, it is the fact that he never loses his cool with Bing, who is also in incredibly annoying. And so there are all sorts of moments where Bing does something. Uh, Bing will knock over his juice and Flop has explained to Bing when he gave him the juice to be very careful with it. And, and then Bing just knocks it over. And, 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 and then Flop just comes in and he says, oh dear Bing, oh dear, have you knocked over your juice? And then he turns it into a life lesson about cleaning and juice and all sorts of other things. And, and, and then, um, unlike me, who when that happens, having carefully explained to my four-year-old, please Judah, do not, be, you know, be careful. And then he knocks it over. I come in, I clean it up because he's not going to clean it up. And I do it passive aggressively and I'm muttering away. And, uh, and there's all sorts of other scenarios. Oh, Bing, don't worry that you've just burned down the entire house with the matches I told you not to play with. Let's just rebuild it from the ashes and let's sing a song. Oh, Bing, don't worry that you've just flushed my 400-pound iPhone down the toilet after you did a poo on the top of it. Let's just, let's just stick our hand up the U-bend and try and pull it out together. And let's sing a merry song as we do it. And what, like... That's what, honestly, watch the program, you'll see exactly what I mean within a few seconds. And I've, I've wrestled with, why do I have this reaction against Flop? Um, I mean, and I really do. Like, I, I'll get other parents, groups of parents of small children, and I'll start going on about Flop to them. And I'll try and get them to join in with the hate crowd. Um, I'll say all kinds of evil things about Flop. And I've realised... Um, <laughs> And I've also realized I need some counseling as a result of this realization. But what, what annoys me about him so much 
is he makes me feel inadequate as a parent. His almost superhuman level of patience just reveals to me my lack of it. Yes, I am that insecure that a cartoon, I don't even think he's a bunny, can create that kind of reaction in me. Um, and uh, I suppose what I'm trying to say is his, his very rightness highlights to me my wrongness. And I do not like that. Do you know people like that? Do you know anyone like that? Whose very rightness in an area just causes a reaction in you because it shows you your wrongness. And uh, follow-up question, do you like them? <laughs> that's, what, that's what I think Jesus is getting at when he's saying that people will come after you. Um, and, you know, think of Cain and Abel, the first murder that happened in the Bible. Cain murdered his brother Abel. Why? What did Abel do? Did he insult him? Did he come after Cain? No, he didn't do anything but offer a right sacrifice to God. And then Cain murdered him. So Abel was murdered not because of something he did wrong, but because of something he did right. Um, the way that this is described in the scripture is in John chapter 3. Uh, it says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. It's this idea that suddenly we realize and we don't like being shown how, how low we can sink at certain points. And so the Beatitudes and living this out isn't about becoming a bit nicer. If we were to become a bit nicer, the world would like us. This is about becoming like Jesus. And whilst there's something incredibly attractive about him, there is also something deeply challenging. And if we're to live the, these things out, you know, it's not blessed are the nice, but blessed are the merciful. Blessed are you in a culture that cancels people for anything. Blessed are you when you show mercy to them. That's going to cause offense in some circles where they think certain people should be written off. And it's not to say what they've done is fine, but it's to say we always build a way back. Blessed are you when you look to make peace in a world where, in a culture where we delight in, in making enemies out of people who disagree with us. Blessed are you when you have a pure heart in a culture where we love to muddle and get involved in the mess and the muck of everything. So it's that's going to cause a reaction. When we seek to be like him, there will be a strong response, says Jesus. A consequence of living out the Beatitudes is we will find ourselves persecuted. And then, of course, uh, when we recognize that, the challenge becomes learning to live in a culture where uh, our beliefs are not shared. And it's really hard to negotiate that. It's really hard to work that one through. And it's easier for me than it is for you because I spend so much of my time in church and surrounded by Christians. And so I'm always asking people, how do you do it? What does it look like in, in your environment, whatever that looks like? And, and I remember chatting a little while ago to a really successful businessman, high-powered guy, and just saying to him, how do you do it in this world of finance that you exist in? And his answer surprised me because he, he just looked at me and he said, you have to work out what you're willing to die for. And what he meant by that is you have to work out what your lines in the sand are and then you stick to them. Um, and of course our response is, well, we, we're going to die for Jesus. Uh, and that's absolutely right. But in the UK, the chances of that happening through physical torture, fortunately, are very small. 
So our, our dying for him is going to look very different. It's going to be um, the life or death moments probably won't be literal, but they will be very real. And it's finding those moments where it's like, this for me is a line in the sand and I will not cross it. What are those for us? What are those for you in, in your world, in, in your daily life? I remember um, when I was a student at university, and I've shared some of this before, but I, I used to play a lot of sport, and a lot of the guys who played this sport were in this um, drinking society, and they invited me to join it. And I wanted to join it because they were my friends, and I was there to, to, to partly to, to be in their lives and to love them. And uh, I, just by not being in it, I wouldn't have been around much. So I said, I'd love to join, but you just need to know that I'm a follower of Jesus, and so I don't get drunk. Um, so I'm happy to have a beer, but I, I won't get drunk. Is that all right? And they said, that is fine, but you do need to do the initiation, uh, which everybody has to do to get in this society. And, and that gave me a problem because the initiation was like three hours of drinking games. And I said to them, oh, okay, um, how about instead of doing it with alcohol, I do it with milk? And I realized I made a terrible mistake when they said, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> And, and then I turned up to this initiation and the first challenge was just drink four pints of milk. Um, and and uh, there was about four or five other guys who were doing this initiation with me. They were all drinking alcohol. I was throwing up way before any of them were throwing up. Your stomach cannot take as much milk as alcohol, I discovered. And milk, when it, when it comes back up, uh, having been in there, it's congealed. So it's kind of like cottage cheese just pouring out of your mouth. And I know this because I saw piles of it at my feet. Um, and also, one of the things that really annoyed me in the three hours I was having to do this is within about 20 minutes, all the other guys who were doing it were completely hammered. And I had to keep drinking and then throwing up and drinking and throwing up. But by the end of it, three hours later, I was proudly the stone-cold sober member of a drinking society. Um, and I'm not saying I got it all right by any means at university, but it was learning, and we all have to do this, how do I be involved right at the heart of the lives of the people that God has put in my path? The life of, of the community, the life of the workplace or the school, how do I be involved right at the heart of it and yet not compromise on those things where, where it's, it's against what he would want me to do? And I was fortunate that most of them were fine with me choosing the milk option, although there was some pushback as it went on. And what, what would that look like for you? I remember hearing uh, of a guy who, he stopped swearing when he became a Christian. He was working and uh, he became a Christian. He decided he was going to stop swearing. Didn't make a thing of it. Didn't explain why to anyone. Didn't tell anyone else they, they should stop swearing. And he got a lot of hostility from, from the guys at the work because, because he was suddenly different and they didn't like it. Um, and it's not just about us standing against things. Oh, we don't do this and we don't do this. But it's working out what are we going to stand for? In a world that's obsessed with sex, what does it look like to stand positively for purity? In a world that's all about selfishness, what does it look like to be generous? In a world that's all about me first, how do we live in a way that puts others first? Um, uh, there's a guy called Gary Grant, you may have heard of. He runs the entertainer toy shops, and they're in Watford High Street and elsewhere. And part of his journey is he became a Christian, and he was already a business owner, and he, he tried to work out what difference does it make to the way that I lead my business being a follower of Jesus. And for him, and this isn't 
the case for every business owner, but he just heard the Lord for him. Um, he felt like he wanted to commit to giving 10% of the profits of the business away, that the business would give away 10% of its profits, and that also they would never open their shops on a Sunday. And um, all these years later, he is stuck to it. And it's cost him an awful lot of money. Um, you know, sometimes the best day of the year has fallen on a Sunday and he's had to resist that temptation to open up the shops. Now, as it happened, his business has thrived and he's now got over 100 shops and 1,400 employees and stuff like that. But the point is, um, he would have done it even if the business hadn't thrived. That for him was his way of drawing a line in the sand and his way of making a statement and deciding almost beforehand, this is how I'm going to live should this happen. My big, um, my big wrestle, if I'm honest, when I've preached on this, uh, been looking at preaching on this, has been the fact that it scares me. This idea scares me. This idea of standing out and of being different and of not going with the flow. It scared me since I was a little kid in a playground and it scares me now. And I've had to work out, Lord, how do, I, how do I get up here and talk about this kind of stuff when I know full well this, for me, is a terrifying idea. And I think where I found my comfort and courage is in the verse where he says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The word me. There is the courage and there is the hope for us when we feel afraid. I finished with this. Yesterday, I had the great privilege of, of doing a wedding for Mariana, who's been part of our church for a long time, and uh, her now husband, Mike. And it just hit me again as they made their vows to each other. Um, just what an astonishing promise it is that they're saying, till death is due part, in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer. And, and they, in that moment, as any couple do on their wedding day, they give this, what is ultimately one giant, wonderful yes to the other person. Yes to you. I say yes to you with my whole life. And in that moment, they mean it and they feel it deeply and it's profound. But we all know that that first yes is really just the beginning of a thousand, a hundred thousand other yeses that come along the way. And many no's that will also be a consequence of their commitment and a consequence of their vow. And they do it not because they're, they're making some kind of commitment to a principle or to, or to some ideal or idea or a philosophy but they're doing it because they've fallen in love with a person. And so it is for us that when we say yes to following him, it's a simple yes, I'm in, but it's also this giving of the whole of who we are. And we give it to him and, I, and we look at him and we see his kindness and his gentleness and his tenderness and his, his majesty and yet how low he comes to love us. And how he outstretches his arms and there's a scars on the palm of his hands. That, that concrete sign of what he gave that we might know him. And, and we say yes to him. And in that yes, there are a thousand other yeses. That we will stand up for this and for that. Because I've said yes to you. Even when no one else will. And in the same way, I'll say no to this. And I'll say no to that. Because... Not because I want to be faithful to some kind of ideal, but because I want to be loyal to you and I've given my love to you. And as we do that, 
we will truly find rejoicing in being in that place because we get to say to him, Lord, this is horrible. I don't know how you did it, but I'm doing it for you because I love you, because I've given myself to you. Amen. Amen.